Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. I'm super excited to have PhD at UPenn and social media star, Ricky Barrett. And he mentioned that the microenvironment is more than, of course, just the immune cells that are around it, because there's a big focus on that. But in addition, there's also the parts that your body already makes that aren't cancerous and aren't immune cells, but are still parts of that environment. And they can actually be used in different directions, either to help the tumor or fight the tumor specifically fibroblasts, but there are other constituents that can also achieve this. Yeah, I mean, we specialize in uh, a particular type of cell called a fibroblast, and this is certainly not included in uh, the immune system as you think of it with right. your branch and your adaptive branch. Um, but with a lot of the research coming out, you know, it, it's very interwoven with how the immune system responds to really anything in the body. And it makes sense because fibroblasts are these cells that provide all the structural support for our whole body. They're in every single organ. You know, they get a lot of uh, media attention in the skin. Everybody wants to sell you a skin product that rejuvenates your fibroblasts, but they make up your spleen. They make up, you know, your lungs. Every organ needs these fibroblasts. They're producing collagen, matrix, all sorts of things to, so that all the organs can function as they normally function and all the cells that are there can perform their job. And tumors need to be able to produce the same things that an organ has. They're kind of a, a neo-organ themselves. They need blood flow, just as an organ does. They need tolerance from the immune system to not be killed, just like an organ does. And they also need structure um, to be able to coordinate all of that. And that is where the fibroblasts come in very often, and especially in solid tumors. Um, and so all of the fibroblasts are there. A lot of times these cancer cells are able to manipulate fibroblasts, right? Because normally the fibroblasts will be somewhat suppressive to new growth. They want to maintain this homeostasis, oh. you know, everything operating as normal. So they kind of encase it or just kind of keep it like, okay, these are all, you know, when you get an architect for a house, you have to make sure the foundation can hold the weight of the staircase, this and that. Not necessarily that it collapses immediately, but all of those dynamics are important to make sure for the longevity that things are, like you said, homeostasis or, or, or in order and non-problematic. So fibroblasts, actually in function of also being like the bricks that make it up also serve as kind of like a support to kind of keep it you know healthy and controlled and what you're saying is cancer cells actually manipulate them to not be able to keep it in the same place well what they'll do is you know they kind of need the fibroblasts in a lot of cases and certain tumors rely on them more than others so it depending on what kind of cancer you're looking at you know the role the fibroblasts are playing can differ slightly Mm -hmm. But what they can do is kind of trick the fibroblasts in a way into going into this wound healing response, right? If you get a cut, the fibroblasts that are normally resting, you know, in your skin will kind of come online. We call them activated and they will begin repairing that area. They'll make, you know, scar tissue that bridges across. You'll notice that the skin gets tight, right? They'll actually, right. Uh, the fibroblasts will express muscle proteins for a short period of time that's pulling that wound back together, creating tension. And so they're really dynamic and activated in this sense. Uh, and they're producing a lot of growth hormones as well to help, you know, facilitate that area. They're coordinating immune responses, you know, as the immune system arrives to help clear bacteria or anything that's gotten in, they'll help coordinate that. Once that is done, you know, you need the immune system to calm down so that the tissue can grow and heal normally, and they'll help coordinate that process as well. So they do a lot of this coordinating, even though they've, you know, been overlooked for a very long time. And they'll do the same thing in the tumor. The tumor will kind of trick them into going into this wound healing state. And they can, you know, the tumor cells can take advantage of what these fibroblasts are doing. 
not all of them are helping the tumor. There's actually fibroblasts that are fighting against it as well. If you removed all of the fibroblasts and they've done these experiments, the tumor will actually get worse. In a lot of cases, they did that pancreatic cancer. And so this has brought us into this new field of trying to understand, okay, there's not just fibroblasts. Right. There's all sorts of different types of fibroblasts that are doing different jobs in this tumor. And that's what a lot of our work has come down to right now is understanding what are the different populations. We know some are trying to contain the tumor. Uh -huh. Some are being manipulated by the tumor in a way that's helping it grow or shutting down the immune system. You know, if the tumor cells can't shut it down themselves, they can get fibroblasts to help them shut it down. Wow. So it's very dynamic interplay going on. Um, that is very in, tightly interwoven with the immune response. And we think is a big reason why certain cancer types like pancreatic, for instance, have been almost completely uh, immune to immunotherapy. Right, like, Immun like, like resistant to, to therapies. So, yeah. you know, one example, I guess I said, you know, hijacking, but, but it's almost like in the movies, how you see that someone's trying to escape the shooters or cops and they take like, you know, a hostage and, and that's a way to shield basically against the law enforcement that should be attacking something bad. It's, it's, it's some effect, they're taking a fibroblast or a hostage and using its kind of repelling or, you know, don't come at me, you know, mm -hmm. capabilities to protect itself, I guess. Is that is that a fair uh, analogy? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair way to describe it. You know, there's, I, I think there's certain tumor cells that are very skilled at evading the immune system on their own. And there's other ones that don't have a full tool tool belt. And so what they can do is manipulate other cells around them to help them achieve that goal. Because in the end, in order for a tumor to survive in the body, it has to evade the immune system. Um, and depending on the cell type and what it's doing, a lot of them can arrive to that same conclusion in many different ways. Um, and that is a big thing to consider when you're thinking about immunotherapy is they're not all evading the immune system in the exact same way. Um, and again, bring it back to something like pancreatic cancer, up to 70 to 90% of that tumor can actually be fibroblasts. So if you flip that around, that's 10 to 30% of the tumor are actually tumor cells. And the majority of that mass is actually these fibroblasts. So they're playing a huge role in uh, really dictating how that, what we call the micro environment, right? That environment that the uh, cancer has created for itself. They're dictating how that is, you know, existing and also how these cells that are coming into that space are going to be interacting with it. And we hope that by targeting certain populations or manipulating them to be more helpful in, in the treatment of the cancer, that we can sway uh, the way that those treatments tend to go. What are some of the other things that are in the microenvironment that you know of? Yeah, so, you know, kind of like I talked about before, it, that in order for these solid tumors to develop, they basically have to create a new organ for persons in your body. Well, your matrix and everything. Exactly. And so, you know, the blood vessel cells are very important. And so they need to have what we call angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels coming into the tumor. And most tumors are pretty successful at being able to do that. But a lot of times those blood vessels are damaged or, you know, they've kind of been pulled into that environment in a way that is, I guess you could say somewhat unnatural because it's a tumor kind of manipulating all this. And then uh, we get to what everyone's excited about. The immune cells are also there. And, you know, depending on the ability of those specific tumor cells to evade the immune system or push it off, you can see different things. You can have complete immune deserts where they've been so successful that the immune cells are hardly even reacting. And when I say immune cells in that sense, I'm usually talking about T cells because those right. are the main cell types of the immune system that are targeting the cancer because they're able to 
um, kind of eliminate your own cells that look already. They have the best toolkit for doing that. They've been doing it for a hot minute. They've been doing it for a while, um, but you will see some of these suppressive immune cell types. You can get certain types of macrophages, right, mm -hmm. from the innate immune system that are good at kind of quelling the immune response. And this is all stuff that the immune system normally does, right? Your immune system needs to control itself a bit. And so it's not reinventing the wheel. These tumor right. cells are usually just taking advantage of pathways that are already there. They're already in place. Yeah, to quiet the immune system. And so you can have some where there's just, you know, no T cells, no immune response. You can have ones where the immune system clearly knows there's something wrong and but they can't get into the actual white. Yeah, they're like they're looking at it and they're all around. Yeah, and you can assess that. But they're but that actual last kill step isn't there. Yeah, so which one is the one that you more encouraged by. And I'm sure it's not black and white. But if mm -hmm. you see a rich one, you're trying to open the door to let them flood in. What about the desert? Like, is there a way to just, are there therapies that you know exist where if it is a desert and they're not even seeing it at all, Harry Potter cloak, like they, they have no idea. Mm -hmm. Are those sometimes, or have they shown anywhere clinically that you can actually unveil it and all of a sudden they do come? Yeah. So those are probably the trickiest ones to treat, right? The and which cancers one, are those? The, the what? And which cancers are those? They're actually all within the same type. Right. Oh. And so if you look at one type of cancer, you can see all of these different things across I the spectrum. Gotcha. And so there's still a lot of work being done to understand, you know, what are the key aspects of these tumor cells that are able to create these deserts and hide completely from the immune system? What are the tumor cells doing that the immune system recognizes are there, but they won't enter and actually engage mm -hmm. the cancer cells? And then what are the ones where the immune cells are there? They're engaging them, but they're just not quite enough. That last overcome right. the cancer. And when you're over in that space where the tumor cells are recognizing it, but they're just not getting enough to kind of overcome that microenvironment and kill the cancer, that's where you usually have the best hope for immunotherapy, right? Because it pushes them a little further, it gives them a little extra kick, it removes some barriers that that's not sign that, that the PD one, PDL one, that kind yeah, of yeah. When you're in an immune desert, that tends to be a you know less promising space for a patient. Their right. immunotherapies will have a harder time. In when I say immunotherapies, I'm mostly talking checkpoint inhibitors, um, since those are the most widely used currently. Uh, they'll tend to be less successful in that uh, particular type of patient. Yeah. Now, there are instances where we can make some pretty major adaptations to the immune system, and you know, this is where we're talking about things like cellular therapy, like CAR T for instance, which was developed here with one of our collaborators, Carl June, and we've actually developed CAR T cells in our lab um, that are very interesting that um, I'll, I'll get into in a bit because um, ours don't actually attack the cancer cells. They attack those fibroblasts that I mentioned before. And it was one of no the- No kidding, CAR T therapy to attack the fibroblasts. Exactly, so- I learned so much on this podcast. And so that's pretty neat, but briefly, I'll just introduce basically what cellular therapy is, yeah. um, that there's a little bit of context and, you know, looking through the history that I'm sure you've, you've probably talked to many people about in treating cancer, you know, the first thing we had is, is maybe just surgery, right? There's a tumor there, it's just cut it out. And then finally, the, you know, people realized that there were certain chemical drugs, right? Chemotherapeutics were these molecules that would kill the cancer cells a little bit faster than they would the healthy cells. And so maybe we can treat with that. And that was a big step up from just cutting it out, right? You know, right. they weren't perfect, but there certainly were people that responded well to them and people that were cured, you know, with those drugs and people who at least had 
their uh, lifetime expanded a bit. Right. The next was kind of these biologic drugs, right? A lot of the drugs now are these antibodies or protein drugs. And that took a little bit longer to come. And that was really where the first wave of immunotherapies came as well was during that space where we have these biologics where people, you know, an antibody is not like a chemical drug. It's orders of magnitude larger. It needs to be made from a living thing and then isolated and then it can be used. And so it's a far more complicated type of drug. And those are the math. These- so anyone listening, if you yeah. have like, you know, Ixamab or whatever, those MABs are, that MAB is what the antibody means, literally AB. Um, and that's why you see so many of those now that you didn't see before. Yeah, monoclonal antibody, M-A-B, right. just like the M that. is monoclonal. Oh, no way, I didn't know yep. that. But still, let me just recreate that. The MAB is yep. monoclonal. <laughs> okay, awesome. And then what was after antibodies? Yeah, and so this is kind of the new revolution. And I don't want to, you know, make people think that as we go far, you know, further down this chain, that things just get better. There's still brilliant chemical drugs that are coming out that are curing people that take advantage of new biology we've learned, and they will continue to be great biologics. Um, But in the, basically how complicated the treatments are getting, I, I would imagine this is probably a step forward, which is actually using whole living cells as the treatments themselves. And in the case of CAR-T, which is really one of the first prominent examples of this, what they would do is, you know, if a patient is having difficulty with their immune system recognizing the cancer, there's something missing from the immune system's toolkit to be able to overcome the barrier that the cancer's put in place. What we can do is genetically engineer the patient's own immune cells to give it the tools that we think it needs to overcome that. And in the case of what Carl June, one of our collaborators did here with CAR-T, is they took out patients' immune cells, the T cells specifically we talked about, which are the best cancer hunters, and they genetically engineered them just by introducing a receptor, right? A receptor that will recognize the cancer. And this is from, you know, their design, right? They know the cancer they're trying to fight. They know what targets are on it. And so they made a receptor that they can plug into these T cells. They do that outside of the patient's body allow those cells to get activated, kind of expand and grow up and grow in numbers. And now these genetically modified T cells that have this new receptor that they didn't have before because we created it and put it in them, um, will go back in the body and they will basically target and kill whatever that receptor will bind to. And in the case of a lot of the blood cancers, they've been very successful. In fact, this year was the 10 year anniversary of the first patients they cured. And so they feel comfortable calling it. 10 years now. And so they officially called it a cure now, but there's been many more people um, that these have worked really well in and have basically been cured. They have long lasting cures. That's not to say there's no side effects, right? I don't want to paint a perfect picture. There's certainly, you know, cytokine storm. situations, cytokine storms where the immune system's overreacting. It's not this, you know, super miracle therapy, but for the people that it worked well in, it certainly is, right? They had terminal cancer, they were on their deathbed and this brought they them back. multiple lines. And it's not yeah. like a bone marrow transplant where like people think for some reason, since it's bone marrow transplant doctors that, oh, they're not, there wouldn't be an aloe, allograft transplant. So they're probably not CAR T. That's not the case at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, people should definitely be looking at trials and seeing if they, right now the indications are like, you know, high grade lymphomas and leukemias, but it's being studied everywhere. And, and yeah, you have a, you know, a scarier window for, you know, two to four weeks, but, but that's why a lot of times it's in the ICU and you're with specialists that are used to now seeing these things and how to kind of balance it. And then, you know, outside that month, the side effects go down dramatically, you know, and the effect or benefit from them. 
Yeah, and it depends on what the you know CAR T cell is targeted after. You know that will change the side effects as well because you know based on what they are eliminating from the body, sometimes there is still overlap with healthy cells, and so that can be factored in to the side effects as well. Um, but even these, you know, and that's a cellular therapy because the cell itself from that patient is now the treatment, um, and so that's kind of what we we think of in these cellular therapies. And that's a, a extreme one where we're using genetic engineering and a few other things. Um, in there to introduce these. And the really exciting part, and this is very cutting edge now, is that this has been taken a step farther in order to make these even more efficient. Um, The problem with this therapy is one, it's very difficult to implement. The majority of the hospitals in the US couldn't pull off this therapy. This is technically Um, difficult, like because you have to take out the cells from your body. Takes a lot of resources. Um, and a lot of expertise. And mm-hmm. with that comes a very high cost. These are mm-hmm. probably some of the highest cost treatments or hundreds of thousands of dollars um, because you're not just paying for you know a drug or something, you're paying for an entire team to pull off this uh, entire process of you know genetically modifying your immune system. Um, and so what's being worked on now, and this is actually something our lab just published or my boss with many collaborators just published, is to be able to make these cells inside the human body without ever having to take them out of the body. What? Yeah. And so in the more interesting part is we're doing this using the same technology the COVID vaccines used. um, You're engineering it and you're letting the body do that, read the blueprint and code. Exactly. So Drew Wiseman, one of the, you know, founding scientists of that technology for the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, he works, 60 feet away from us. (laughs) And so we work closely with him to, uh, and this was published in science in January. And so I can talk about everything that's been published so far, um, that what they're working on is basically taking, you know, if people can kind of remember back to how the COVID vaccine works, you have this lipid nanoparticle, right? It's just basically like a little oil droplet, but a little more complicated. And inside of that is the RNA that codes for the spike protein. Um, and in that which case, is, which is just a mini blueprint, not for the whole house, but literally just for a shutter or, you know, something that's recognized with it, like an antique door and yeah. then just go to the antique door. You can say, I know it's that house in the neighborhood because it's the only one with the house. Exactly. And that's great for the immune system, right? It just needs something to target. And in the case of that vaccine, it delivers that package to antigen presenting cells in the body. The cells that are training your immune system says, here's the code for a spike protein. You go ahead and make it and show it to all the immune system so that they know how to fight it. Right. right. Uh, and in that case, that's a very simple model for how that works. The COVID vaccines, uh, you know, they've been working on that technology for them for a long time. And so they're able to roll them out very quickly. What we're trying to do is something a little more complicated, but using the same premise. And so now we're taking those oil droplets, those lipid nanoparticles, we're targeting them specifically to the T cells. And so we'll take an antibody that will bind to something on the T cell and we'll stick it on the outside of those lipid nanoparticles. So now it's not just an oil droplet, but it has something targeting it a little more specifically as well. And so now they'll go in the body, they'll go right to the T cell, stick to it. And when it does, the T cell will take it in. And now loaded in those little lipid nanoparticles is the RNA for a different protein, right? In the vaccines, it was for the spike protein. In this case, it was for our receptor. Protein on the cancer. Yeah, and so this wow. is CAR T. You know, I mentioned the CAR Ts were engineering right. in a receptor. A receptor is just a protein, and so we can do the same thing. We'll right. put the genetic material for that protein into those, and then the T cells will take it up. 
express that CAR T cell and then go do their killing. And the nice thing about RNA is there's a little less risk for side effect here because RNA is not expressed for long periods of time. And the current therapy we're making, you know, introducing DNA. So they will always be expressing these CAR T receptors. In the case of RNA, they only express it for a short time. And so hopefully they'll go do their job, kill all of the cancer cells, and then that RNA, stop, once it's they're yeah. not able to make it anymore and everything will hopefully kind of go back to normal. So you can do a couple treatments if you need to, and hopefully, you know, the immune system kind of resettles back to the way it was. And hopefully, you know, my hope is that that will bring the cost down considerably because now, you know, these are certainly more complicated than every, you know, we're adding a lot more pieces, I will say, than what was just in the COVID vaccine, but it's still a much simpler thing to pull off logistically than taking out people's immune, ses- immune system, engineering it and putting it back. And so really amazing technology. My mind is blown. Are you using like a CD3 or CD8? Like, is that the, is that the thing that goes and hones to the T-cell uh, that's in your I body? Or? In the paper, they used a CD5. Um, okay. And so it's a less common T-cell receptor than what people right. normally think of. I, I think Younger. they wanted, yeah, I wasn't on this paper. This was started right before I got here. It, they've been working on it a while. Um, and I, I think the problem with targeting CD3, which is a common T cell receptor, right, is that, that we is need everywhere. that to function, right? The T cell, that's something they're actually using. And right. so if it's bound by this light banana particle, it will actually be incorporated in the T cell and be removed from uh, the plasma membrane. So they had to be a little careful about which uh, target they were using because the target was also going to kind of get turned over as it was pulling these things in. That's an extremely polite way of saying no, dude, that would make no sense because you would die immediately. <laughs> so I appreciate it. all things you find out in the lab, though. You find that out first in the lab. You're yeah. like, oh, well, as soon as you said, yeah, no, that, that sounds like a really bad idea. And I hope they didn't test that on not even an animal. That sounds terrible. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and so that's what they did. And, and so far, they've been able to do it in uh, animal models. And so hopefully it'll be able to be progressed to the point where we see, you know, efficacy in humans as well. This is also very exciting. It's like, I'm just, I'm mind blown. And that's why, you know, there was a time, even like five years ago, when I was starting to do like cancer stuff, I would say, you know, talk about survivals and loosely, I don't like to just give it, you know, a time because it totally matters how you respond on first line, blah, blah. But now I'm able to say in a lot of the cancers, I'm like, your first line may, you know, it should work like 12 to 18 months or 24 months. And I'm like, but, but I was like, the reason it's very hard to say what then the second line will give you a third line is because that's not factoring in what's going to happen in those 18 to 24 months. And I'm like, so it's, it would be, it would not only be like presumptuous, it would almost be wrong to just say like, this is what I expect over the next three or four years, because to think that the available options and lines today will be the same as four years from now is almost insane just because of, you know, hearing things like this. Mm. So and I hope this is okay that I bring it up, but because we're buddies, I know yeah. that you had mentioned that, you know, and that's part of the reason that I've been really kind of focusing outside of clinic and more on trying to move the needle forward in cancer care. And the biggest problem is like knowing data, like what are the things that are happening on the 15 to 20 patients I see a day that, fit, you know, my wife, Lauren sees, and that's the things that we pick, the things that end up working out and don't, and they're not data supported because we don't know how do we just aggregate that together so that we can actually have better informed decisions and make retrospective observations on saying, oh, it looks like these molecular factors or these you know, switches on, on the tumor kind of make it more likely or make it more unlikely to respond to this treatment. 
you kind of experienced that firsthand, right? About trying to have, you know, some therapy offered to some, to a friend of yours, a good close friend of yours that was having a lot of difficulty and very uniquely not responding to treatments for testicular cancer. Is that okay to bring up? Yeah, it's, um, I hadn't talked about it for a while, but it certainly changed the way I, I kind of think about things. Cause I hadn't worked in the cancer space before coming here even. And so a lot of this was, was new to me, but I felt, you know, really good being able to do research that was potentially, you know, developing therapies that could help people. And, um, but it hit a lot more close to home when, yeah, one of my buddies from college, you know, he had testicular cancer and, um, you know, I, at first just knew the common knowledge about testicular cancer. And I was like, oh man, you're going to be fine. Like the therapies that they've developed for this are great. Yeah. There's Those no stage four. Very it's high. A, it's, a, even yeah. if it spreads, it's like the one thing where you don't even call it stage four still, just because classically it, you know, 95 plus percent, you know, cure rate. Yeah. And that's, you know, what I was thinking about. And, and it's funny when you, when you work in like this field and you're thinking about 95% cured, you just think like, that's not even a problem anymore. Yeah. For pure, I should say for pure seminoma, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just very high regardless. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you kind of just discredit that stuff to your mind. You're like, that's amazing. We've gotten that far. That job's done there. Like we, we did it right. until you realize that 5% of people are, are not, you know, responding to anything and how scary that is. And unfortunately, you know, he was one of those people who failed first and second line. Um, and I was, you know, the only person working in cancer that he knew really well. And so we would talk a fair bit, you know, it's just very scary feeling, you know, when you fail those first couple lines and even your doctors are like, I, I don't know, do some research and see what's out there. And you just have a person with no medical background trying to go through like NIH databases, you know, and just fighting for their life, but just not, there's no way you can get navigate the kind of background knowledge that you need to understand that kind of stuff in that short of a time. And so I was trying to help where I could, you know, we were, and it was a weird feeling, you know, cause I, I felt good working in this cancer space where I was developing these drugs and stuff, um, or these therapeutics. And then all of a sudden, like I was completely useless. Like when somebody actually had cancer and somebody I cared about and I wanted with everything to be able to help, it was like, you know, I'm working on tomorrow's therapies when somebody needed them right now, like today. And the clock was ticking down right. and it was a hard thing. I felt very useless and I just wanted to be able to tell them a lot more. Um, and, and we did what we could. We tried to, um, you know, go through all the different immunotherapies. A lot of that his insurances by the end wouldn't cover, you know, when he finally found some that he wanted to do his insurance wouldn't cover it. Um, and I went down to, you know, try to see him one last time, but unfortunately he passed. Um, and so it, uh, it, it changed the way I, I think, I think a lot about it, right? It's not yeah. this puzzle I'm working on, um, trying to, you know, figure these things out and unlock them. Um, but the fact that there's a, I just blew, you know, to open my eyes to all the people like right now who need stuff, yeah. people right now where there's therapies that could potentially help them, but there's just so many things out there that how can I mean, I could hardly look through it all. You know, I was there. I have the background. I, you know, have been with people that are seeing things in the clinical trials and I couldn't sift through everything. Yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, first of all, you know, I admire you a lot for one, sharing that story, but two, especially for just being there for your friend and taking on that, you know, I experienced that to a large degree, just 
being an oncologist, you know, they think, oh, they don't, you don't know him. I'm like, I've known him for years at this point. I see him every like two or three weeks. I know every child's name and every everything. And then you get to that point. And that's what brought me, you know, to, to eventually to, to X-Cures, which is like artificial intelligence that actually runs it all for you. Like every single, they, they read the fingerprint and molecular testing on your tumor, your even germline mutations, if they're relevant. And they look at everything to say, hey, these are all the things that work. These are the lines that, that the order is in. And then you talked about cost earlier and they, you know, have like uh, access programs where they can actually like funnel you in. And the reason they did that was because uh, the CEO, uh, Mika Newton, his good friend, was stage four melanoma, like in his 20s or 30s, successful entrepreneur. And yeah. he said exactly what you said. He's like, it was only because I was like, really just rich enough and savvy enough, like like with all my, you know, startup industry stuff, that he had to seek out everything himself and had to learn so much, found a trial. The trial actually never made it to approval, but it was immunotherapy as a vaccine and it worked in him. So trials that fail, they still work in a subset. He's still cured to this day and he's stage four. And so that, that, uh, uh, I believe his name is Marty, but that was what inspired Mika as well um, as his friend to to say we got to do this for people. Exactly what you went through yeah. is what um, uh, Excures and other you know artificial intelligence uh, oriented companies are really just saying loudly and in institutions like we have to. The, the human bandwidth is so small, and we have all the technology to be able to process that in you know logarithmic speed. So that's actually what brought me to this podcast. It was never anything about that, but me as a physician using Xcurve, yeah. got to know the CEO. But that's what um, I was saying before, like I couldn't believe that something like that didn't exist. Like when he came to me and it was like, my doctors, like they ran, they went through their book and that's the end. And I'm like, what do you mean that's the end? Like, no, right. like we're pumping stuff out into these clinical trials all the time. Like there's no way that that's like the end of therapy. Like right. and it just seemed insane. I, and cause I had never come up through the healthcare. Like I came up, marine biologist that yeah. eventually worked in i did not come up knowing anything about healthcare in the traditional sense um and i you know a lot of people will come up wanting to be physicians or something and i didn't even want to do that and part of it was because i you know the i think press oh the bureaucracy yeah, and I, also, I had no idea until i got out into it and also what you mentioned before which is getting to know these patients and you know having patients pass away and, and kind of being with people through this whole journey i just didn't think i could quite pull that off um yeah. it, it would be a little too hard on me and so I, I just never even thought about medicine until i kind of came in through the back door and um you know ended up in this space because i just wanted to be a scientist working on this stuff and those kinds of inefficiencies blew my mind ricky this was awesome i thoroughly enjoyed this and if anyone listening did i just need you to put in the comments or whatever share it to say we need to see that very just great man, humble, smart, uh, typical, you know, <laughs> I've, I, I can't give enough compliments. I think you're awesome. I really do. I, I respect you a lot. And, um, and I would love to hear that people would like you back. Cause I know I certainly would, um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep fighting the good fight. Where can they find you if they want to learn about this geeky science stuff? Yeah, so my handles are rickyrick.phd, so R-I-C-K-Y, R-I-C-K, and then .phd. Um, and so Instagram and TikTok are probably what I use the most. And so if you want to uh, keep up to date, uh, and I'll go through fluctuations when things get busy in the lab. You might not hear from me for a couple of weeks, you know, just little spats here and there. Um, but when we have, you know, things catch up and get a little more sane, I'll try to do a flurry of posts and uh, oh, keep everybody wow. up to date on what we're looking at, what we're thinking about. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more to get 
in depth about with uh, our research. You know, there's a lot of things I didn't even explain here yet. So I'd love people to hop on board and, and check it all out.